thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, the greatest teacher to ever live is Jesus, and the most famous teaching that he ever did was the Sermon on the Mount, and one of the most popular portions uh, of that sermon is referred to as the Beatitudes. The the word Beatitude means uh, the blessings, and Jesus says, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, and each time he says that, he tells us of the group that's blessed. It's the group that has a, a particular character quality and then he shares the blessing that comes with that. And there's eight different character qualities that Jesus says are blessed by God, and each one has a specific blessing from God. Uh, And so this morning, we're going to be looking at that. We just finished 1 Corinthians, and um, and next Sunday will be my final Sunday before going to Uganda, so we're not going to start another book until I get back. But uh, this morning, we're just going to be focusing on these eight different character qualities that God blesses. And I want you to recognize something because I think so often we kind of just focus on one or two and think, man, I'm really going to do well in these. And we we kind of neglect the others. And that's not the point of this. The point of this is to have all of them, to have a well-balanced character. Uh, and so God wants us to be pursuing each one of these things, to be growing in each one of these things. And one of the motivations is as we look at the blessings that come with each one, I'm sure that you're going to want the blessing, but you need to recognize it's associated with what God reveals as the character quality that goes with that. And so as we look at these, I just want to challenge you to look at your own life and see, you know, am I lacking in any of these eight qualities? Do, do I you know, need to grow in some of them? And if so, then I would encourage you to pray, ask God to help you to do that this morning so that you can you know, just become more like him, because this is ultimately uh, a description of what he's like. And so Matthew chapter 5 Jesus' sermon is recorded. He starts by sharing these wonderful blessings, starting in verse 3 is the first character quality. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the first character quality that God blesses are those that are poor in spirit. Now, there are different levels of being poor. Uh, growing up, I felt I was poor for a portion of my upbringing. We lived in a trailer, and I felt like, you know, kind of we were poorer than many of the people that I knew. But we had a roof over our head. We had a meal every day. And so there are definitely people who are of a much l- greater level of poverty uh, than what I experienced. And so the question to ask ourselves is, you know, what level of poverty is Jesus referring to when he speaks of being poor in spirit. Now, something I think is very interesting to note with this sermon is that Matthew records this in the Greek language, which the whole New Testament is, but Jesus would have spoken this sermon in Hebrew. Uh, And so in order to kind of get a a real good grasp of what Jesus is referring to, I think both would be good. Let's see the, the word that Matthew uses for poor, but also most likely the word that Jesus would have actually said in Hebrew. Now, 
The Greek word that Matthew uses here uh, is something that is interesting because, you know, the Greeks had several different words for poverty, uh, and it speaks of someone who has absolutely nothing completely poverty-stricken because Matthew uses a word that spoke of the the lowest form of poverty, someone who was just in the worst state uh, of poverty. But interestingly, the Hebrew word that Jesus would have used that speaks of the lowest form of poverty is very similar to this Greek word, but it has a, a little difference, which is a, a very important difference. Uh, the, the similarity is having absolutely nothing, being completely poverty-stricken, uh, but in the Hebrew, the person who is in that state would then place their trust in God to take care of their needs. In the Greek language, that wasn't the focus. They weren't looking to God. They were just kind of in this state of, you know, oh, great, you know, what am I going to do now? But, you know, the Hebrews, they recognized God was the one to put put their trust in in order to meet that need. So the Hebrew word here that Jesus describes is of this helpless person who has nothing and who has to place their trust completely in God to meet the needs that they have. Now, this is interesting because the kind of poverty that Jesus is speaking of here isn't physical, it is spiritual. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So Jesus is talking about people who have absolutely nothing spiritually. So what Jesus is saying is, blessed are those who recognize that they have absolutely nothing spiritually, and then look to God to meet their spiritual need. And when people do that, Jesus tells us what they'll be blessed with. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, in order to be a part of Jesus' kingdom, in order to receive the kingdom of heaven, you must first recognize you have absolutely nothing spiritually and humble yourself and place your trust completely in God to give you what you spiritually need. Poverty of spirit is an absolute prerequisite for receiving the kingdom of heaven. Because as long as we think that we spiritually have something in ourselves, that we can get to God on our own, that through our good works or some other means of attaining a relationship with God, when we hold to those things, that is always going to keep us from the kingdom of heaven. Because we must recognize, no, I have nothing spiritually, and the only way that I can have a relationship with God is to place my trust completely in who God is and what he has done for me to save me and give me the ability to have a relationship with him. It's only those who first recognize that they're spiritually dead and look to the Lord to give them spiritual life that can ultimately have the kingdom of heaven. You know, when you and I placed our trust in Jesus, we went from spiritual poverty to spiritual abundance. I mean, think about that. Ephesians tells us that we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so we went from spiritually having nothing to placing our faith in Jesus Christ and God giving us spiritually everything. Now, the problem with mankind is that they don't want to acknowledge that they have spiritually nothing. They don't want to acknowledge that they have a need for God. They don't want to acknowledge that they are sinful. They don't want to acknowledge the state that they're in. They want to believe that, you know what, I can do this on my own. I can attain this on my own. I can work my way to God. And so they don't recognize the starting point that they truly are poor in spirit, that they have nothing spiritually. They think, no, no, I have plenty. I have plenty to offer. I have plenty to make it on my own. And until they recognize the truth of who they really are, they'll never come 
to Jesus, their Savior, because they don't think they need one. Well, what do I need to be saved from? I'm a good person. I do good works. I can make it on my own. No, you're sinful. You can't make it on your own. The only way to obtain the kingdom of heaven is to accept what God has done for us in sending his son to die on the cross for our sin, rising from the dead to conquer sin and death. That is what we have to recognize, and that is what ultimately brings the kingdom of heaven. This is a a wonderful promise that when we come to this realization that we are poor in spirit and then place our faith and trust completely in God, he gives us the thing that we so desperately need. He allows us to enter the kingdom of heaven. He forgives us of our sin. So the challenge to be poor in spirit, it's interesting that it's placed first because really it's the perspective that connects to all eight of these things that Jesus is going to speak about because we need to start with a recognition that none of these things are in our strength, they're in our power. It's all about God and trusting in him and his ability and his power and his strength that he gives to us to enable us to do these things. Charles Spurgeon said this about being poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are lifted from the dunghill and set not among hired servants in the field, but among princes in the kingdom. Poor in spirit, the words sound as if they describe the owners of nothing, and yet they describe the inheritors of all things. Happy poverty. Millionaires sink into insignificance. The treasures of the Indies evaporate in smoke, while to the poor in spirit remained a boundless, endless, faultless kingdom, which renders them blessed in the esteem of him who is God over all, blessed forever. You know, this is just the wonderful reality of what we have versus what God gives us that we don't deserve. By his grace, he blesses us with the kingdom of heaven if we come to him recognizing our spiritual depravity and recognizing we need his salvation and asking for it. So the first group that is blessed by God are those who are poor in spirit. Their blessing is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The second characteristic, the second character quality that God blesses are those who mourn. So first we must recognize we have nothing spiritually, and really one of the responses to having nothing spiritually should bring us to a place of mourning. Now, it's interesting, there are five Greek words that we translate into the English, mourn, and most of them have basically the same meaning to lament, to wail, to grieve, to express deep sadness, to mourn. The difference between these words is really just the the depth or level of mourning that goes with it. For example, you know, if you were to have a a cat in your life that were to pass away, you know, you might have a a two or a three on the level of mourning, but, you know, if you had, you know, your spouse or your mother or your father, someone that you deeply loved and were super close to, you would be at the most extreme level of mourning. And and in the Greek culture, that's what they viewed as, the, the greatest level of mourning was when the person that you loved the most were to die, uh, and that brought the greatest sadness and mourning to your life. And so this is the word that Matthew uses, this word the Greeks use for the greatest level of mourning, which was associated with the death of someone you deeply loved. But it's interesting, as we already noted, that Jesus would have spoken this sermon in Hebrew. Matthew records it in Greek. And so the Hebrew word for the greatest level of mourning is similar but yet the Hebrews had a different thing that was on the greatest level. For the Greeks and for our culture, really the greatest level of mourning is the person you love the most dying. But for the Jews, 
It was something that was different. The greatest level of mourning came because of your sin against God. And so there was the death of a loved one that brought this level, and then there was another level that because of my sin against God, there's even a greater mourning that comes through that. And so as Jesus taught this sermon, if he would have used this Hebrew word, a ball, which is the Hebrew word for the greatest level of mourning, those who are listening to him would have recognized you're speaking about sin against God. That is the, the most significant level of mourning there is. And so when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, most commentators believe that he's not just you know speaking about general mourning over anything, but more specifically, blessed are you who mourn because of your sin against God. Now, before you can mourn, express great sadness for sin, you have to recognize how horrible it is. And that's one of our problems because we desire sin, we're tempted by sin, we often see sin in a way that isn't really accurate or true. We see it as this great thing instead of this horrible thing. We see this as this thing that we desire and want instead of something that we should run from because it is so hurtful and damaging. We need to recognize our sin is so bad that it has separated us from God. Our sin is so bad that the consequence of our sin is eternity in hell. Our sin is so bad that the only way that God could deal with it would be to send his own son to pay the price for our sin on the cross. And when we look at that, we should come to a realization of how horrible our sin is and how devastating the effects are of it. Because once we come to that, it brings you to a place of mourning. It brings you to a recognition of how bad your sin is in the fact that you want to mourn over it because you have committed it. William Barclay, a great commentator, said this, Christianity begins with a sense of sin. Blessed is the man who is intensely sorry for his sin, the man who is heartbroken for what his sin has done to God and to Jesus Christ, the man who sees the cross and who is appalled by the havoc his sin has brought." It's important for us to understand that Satan and the world, they want us to believe our sin isn't that big of a deal. It's not that problematic. Actually, it can bless your life. It has so many benefits. They bring this lie to us so that we won't mourn it, so that we won't repent of it, so they won't turn from it. And we need to be aware of what our sin truly does so that we can come to this place of being saddened by it, which hopefully moves us to the more important stage of repenting of it and turning away from it. You know, one of my regular prayers is, Lord, help me to see sin like you do. That's one of our problems. We don't see sin like God does. We don't recognize it for how horrible it is, and that is why we're drawn to it. And I want to get to a place where every sin in my life, you know, it detests, it's detestable. It's something that I, I want nothing to do with. When someone mourns, is grieved, express great sadness for their sin, Notice what Jesus says God will do, the, the, the blessing that is associated with this. He says, they shall be comforted. The Greek word here translated comforted means to console, to strengthen, to encourage, to comfort. So Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who express this great sadness for their sin, because when you do that, when you approach God, recognizing what your sin has done, mourning your sin, repenting of your sin, there is a comfort that God brings to us. 2 Corinthians seven um, ten says this, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. 
You know, what better comfort is there to our sin than the fact that God will save us from it? He'll forgive us of it. You know, godly sorrow, that mourning, it leads to the next step, which is repentance, which leads to the most important thing of all, the blessing that God gives of forgiveness and salvation. Now, I want you to notice what God doesn't do when we express our sadness over our sin. Because so often, you know, we have people that we sin against. I'm sure you've sinned against people, people have sinned against you. And you get to a point sometimes where you're mourning that, you're saddened of that, you want to repent of that. And so you come to that person and you express to them that you're sorry, that you wish you didn't do that, that you want forgiveness of that. And sometimes people who we've sinned against and then we approach with that, don't respond to us in a way that makes us ever want to go and say we're sorry to them again because, you know, they come at us with, well, you better be sorry. You deserve to, you know, have all the consequences of it. And how dare you ever do this to me? And they're, you know, they're upset because of what we've done and their response is something of that nature and, you know, or you deserve to be sad and I don't care if you're mournful or, you know, there's just, you know, these negative responses that often come and sometimes we believe, you know, if we go to God with our sin, that's how he's going to be. Well, I, I told you, you know, you deserve it. You know, hey, I'm, I'm not going to stop any of this stuff. You know, this is all the, you know, what you deserve in your life. And, you know, uh, I don't care that you're mournful. You know, he just doesn't rub it in. He doesn't do those things to us. He comforts us. You know, for those of you who are parents, your kids sin. They sin a lot. My kids sin a lot. One of the things I want from them is to get to a place where when they sin, they actually mourn. Because a lot of times they sin and they're just fine with it and happy about it and they're not repentant of it. But, you know, we want them to get to the place where they're mournful and then repentant. And, you know, when my kids are mourning their sin and repenting of their sin and they come to me and they're truly apologizing for it, I want to comfort them. Because that's the place where they need to be. That's the place I want them to be. It's not like, well, how dare you? You know, it's great. You finally got to this place where, Daddy, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Please forgive me. Well, no, I'm never forgiving you. You've done that 45 times. No, it's a heart of, hey, I want to now comfort you because that's the place I want you to be. And if I can do that and you can do that as sinful parents, how much more our perfect heavenly Father will bring comfort to us when we come to him with our sin, recognizing what it is, mourning it, seeking for him to respond with forgiveness. He will give that to us. And this is just a, a wonderful blessing that comes to those who are willing to mourn their sin. We have the comfort. God wraps his loving arms around us. He forgives us and he helps us as we continue on to try to live for him. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The third character quality that Jesus says God blesses are those that are meek. Now, in our culture today, we kind of have a different perspective of what meekness is compared to what this Greek word actually speaks about, because our idea of meekness today is more of this passive, timid, gentle, easily pushed around person. Uh, but that is not what the Greek word speaks of at all. Uh, for the Greeks, meekness was one of the greatest virtues someone could have. Uh, Aristotle put meekness in his top five virtues that someone should strive for. So this Greek word translated meekness really had two meanings that are very similar. Uh, the first is strength under control, uh, like a strong horse that, you know, could be wild and out of control, but was able to take that strength, put it under control, let someone ride him and be able to do different functions. 
Second, which goes along with the first, is willingly submitting and working under proper authority. So you have this strength under control and a willing, humble submission to authority. Now, what Jesus is ultimately bringing out is this reality that when we humble ourselves and we ultimately will submit ourselves to the authority of God, that that is what God wants, that is meekness, then there's a wonderful blessing. You know, Jesus is the perfect person to speak about meekness because he's the wonderful example of it. If anyone demonstrates strength under control, I mean, imagine Jesus, and I especially think of the end of his life, when they come and they, you know, we always think that, you know, he was forced onto the cross. He could have annihilated every single person who sought to crucify him. He had the strength to wipe them out, but yet it was under complete control and complete submission to the Father. Remember in the garden, he's like, you know, if there's any other way for me to redeem mankind, for mankind to be saved, let's do that. But not my will, but yours be done. Complete submission to the Father and his strength in complete submission to what the Father wanted. He is a a perfect example of what it means to be meek and trusting God and giving God authority over our life. Now, Jesus says, the blessing that comes to those who are meek is they shall inherit the earth. This term inherit the earth has the idea of ultimately getting the things in this life on this earth that we need. And I think this is such a practical blessing because one of the biggest things that keeps people from being meek in the sense of making God the authority of their life, submitting to him, humbling themselves to him and saying, you know what, I am going to put myself under your authority and trust you with my life. One of the biggest things that keeps people from doing that is the fact that they don't trust God to take care of their needs in this life. Well, Lord, if I trust you, if I, if I make you the authority of my life, if I follow you, you know, are you going to take care of my needs? Are you going to provide for me in this area and that area? And so what Jesus is saying is, hey, the blessing that comes for the meek is they're going to inherit the earth. God will take care of your earthly needs as you put him as the authority over your life, as you take him and place him in that role that says, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you. Later on in this sermon, in chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things shall be given to you. And all the things that he's speaking about is, hey, don't worry about, you know, your food and your clothing and all these things. Seek first the kingdom of God. And God will provide these earthly things. That's what he's saying here. You know, in a meek state, submit yourself to God and he will allow you to inherit, you know, these things. He will give you these things. So the third character quality that God blesses are those who are meek, those who put their trust in him, those who give him authority over their lives, and he blesses them with inheriting the earth. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The fourth character quality that God blesses are those who hunger and those who thirst for righteousness. Now, there are many different levels of hunger and thirst, and um, Matthew uses here within the Greek language the most severe. So the word that you would be using if you were about to die of starvation or die of thirst. If you were starving to death or if you were stuck in the desert with no water, 
Imagine, you know, what you would do in order to get water, to get food. I mean, your thoughts would all be about it. You'd be consumed by it. You, you would be longing and desiring for it more than anything else because you would be desperate to stay alive by having food or water. Now, notice Jesus isn't talking about hungering for food. He isn't talking about hungering for water. He's talking about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, Righteousness means the character or quality of being right or just before God. That's the thing that God wants us to hunger for, to thirst for. You know, all of us have hunger for certain foods and, you know, uh, certain drinks. And, you know, we long for those things. But, but way more important than the physical hunger that we have should be a spiritual hunger for righteousness, to have that right standing before God, but also to live the way that God has determined for us to live, the right way that he wants for you and I in every relationship and situation of life. But the great thing is that Jesus says, you know what, when you're someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, like a starving man hungers for food, like a thirsty man, you know, thirsts for water, there's a blessing that comes from that desire, from that longing, from that pursuit He says, you will be filled. This is such a great thing. The word filled means to satisfy or fulfill the desire of something. So when you're starving for food, the only thing that's going to satisfy is food. When you're super thirsty, the only thing that's going to satisfy or fulfill is water. But when you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, the only thing that's going to fulfill that, to satisfy that, is the righteousness of God. And he says, you know what? I'm going to give that to you. When you have that longing, when you have that desire, when you're pursuing righteousness and and to live rightly before me, I will give that to you. And it's kind of this twofold reality of, you know, first and foremost, we're not right. And the only way we can become right is to long for our Savior, Jesus. As we come to him, that initial point in time when we accept him for who we are, who he is, then we become righteous. He makes us righteous. But there's the the sanctification process as well of the fact that we want to be growing and living right lives. And as we desire and long for that as well, that is what God continues to help us and give to us so that we can live the way that he's called us to live. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The fifth character quality that God blesses are those who are merciful. Now, just like with these other words, there are several Greek words that are translated in the English language merciful. They have very similar meanings to feel sympathy with the misery of another, to have pity on others. But just like with the other words, the difference is really the level. You know, how much mercy are you going to show? For example, you might see a homeless person begging for money and and feel a little sympathy and pity or maybe not so much sympathy and pity, but, you know, it doesn't move you to do anything. And so, you know, that level of mercy isn't that much. Uh, And now there's there's other people, family members or loved ones that you see struggling and and not only are you moved with some kind of feeling of mercy, but it's uh, combined with an action that actually goes out and does something to help them. This word that Matthew uses here for merciful was the deepest level of mercy that one could show to someone else. It's a word that not only means sympathy and pity, but also active compassion and identification with the person going through misery. 
When the Greeks used this word for mercy, it meant they did everything they could to identify with the person who was going through this struggle uh, and did all they could to help. I think a great example kind of help us to understand this word better is in Jesus' life. Hebrews chapter 2, we're told this in verse 17 and 18. Therefore, in all things he, speaking of Jesus, had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a faithful, a merciful, sorry, and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Jesus became like one of us. He became a human. And he went through what we go through. He suffered. He was tempted. And so he was able to see things from our perspective. He, he identifies with us very well. And that is why he is able to be that merciful high priest. Because not only can he sympathize, but he understands, he identifies, and he did everything possible to help us as well. So it wasn't just a feeling. It was a feeling that he also had identification with and active work to help meet our needs. So blessed are the merciful, those who not only sympathize and have pity on others in ministry, but also identify with them and do all they can to help meet their needs. You know, this is a kind of mercy that Jesus wants us to demonstrate to others. This is the kind of mercy that he's shown us, and that's how he wants us to respond to others, to be those who have this kind of mercy, that it's not just feelings, but it's also actions. <clears throat> it's something that we move uh, and, and do something with. Now, he says there's a blessing for those who are merciful. It says that we will obtain mercy. So what Jesus is saying is when we're merciful to others, one of the blessings that we receive is that God is now merciful to us. Now, we know biblically that God is even merciful to those who are not merciful, that God gives mercy to people who don't deserve mercy and aren't merciful. But yet Jesus is revealing that there is this special blessing of mercy that comes when we show mercy. And this is something that I think is so important for us to understand, that God says, you know what, I reward your merciful behavior to others by blessing you with mercy from myself. Jesus refers to this in several different areas with forgiveness, and other things as we demonstrate it. There's, you know, there, there's just a connection to how we do something to how God often blesses us in that. You know, I think of David, and, and oftentimes people wonder, why was God so merciful to a man who committed murder, who man who committed adultery, to a man who did all these things? But you know what? When you look at David's life, the man who showed such mercy to Saul, who didn't deserve any mercy, who could have killed Saul many times, he chose not to. This is God's anointed. I'm not going to lay hands on him. David was willing to show mercy, and now we see God showing mercy to David where we think, why, God, would you do that to someone like this? And I think there's a direct connection to the fact that David was so merciful to others, and now God demonstrated mercy to him in a special way. And so if you want to receive mercy from God, a wonderful thing you can do is demonstrate it to others. There's a direct correlation here that Jesus says, God blesses people with mercy who are willing to demonstrate it to others. And so we should do it because we want to be more like Jesus, but also recognize God blesses us with mercy when we're willing to show it. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
The sixth character quality that God blesses are those who are pure in heart. The Greek word translated pure means to be clean, pure, unstained from corrupt desires, from guilt and sin. Now notice the focus here is to be pure in heart. Jesus is talking about those who have a heart that is pure, that is clean, that is unstained. And I think this is so important for us to understand because we so often see things and people differently than God does. An example of this is 1 Samuel 16, 7. It says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, the difference between man and God and the way that we see people is we mainly just see the outward and that's what we're focused on and that's what we look at and that's what we can be deceived by as well. But God looks beyond the outward and he looks to the heart. And this was one of the biggest issues that Jesus had with the religious leaders of his day because they wanted to be seen outwardly as so spiritual and righteous and doing all these things for God, but the heart they had was very far from God, very wicked. And Jesus kept bringing that out to them and pointing it out. Matthew 23, 25 through 27, Jesus speaking, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The problem of the religious leaders was just that, that they wanted to, you know, like a a tomb that they clean up and make look good, but inside is just full of dead bones. And that's what they were. Oh, we'll make our outward look so spiritual, but really we're not dealing with our heart. We're not dealing with the inward. But God sees that. God focuses on that. You know, we can deceive each other and make ourselves look like spiritual people when we're not, which Jesus calls hypocrisy because that's what the word means. But we don't fool God. He knows what we're truly like. He knows what's going on in our heart. And that's the thing that he looks at. And so he wants us to be pure in heart. And, you know, all of us struggle with this. And I want to share two ways that you can grow in this area, that you can become more pure in heart. One of the most important ones of all is 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You want a pure heart? then you need to come to God and confess your sin. Notice he doesn't just forgive us, and that's what I love about this verse, because it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive, and it doesn't stop there, but also to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is why it's so important for us to come to God, repenting and confessing our sin to him, because he is faithful to always forgive and always cleanse, and it gets us to that place again, see, because the our hearts become defiled by our sin and we need a cleansing. We need to get pure. And it only happens as we come to the Lord and repent of those things. And so if you want a pure heart, we need to regularly confess our sin before the Lord. Another practical thing that we can do to help our heart be pure, Psalm 119, 9 through 11 says, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
How can you cleanse your ways? How can someone become more pure before the Lord? Take heed to God's word. Study it regularly. Apply it to your life. It's something that will cleanse you. It's something that will change the way in which you think. It'll change the way in which you act as you apply it to your life. And this is another great practical thing as you confess to the Lord your sin. Also spend an abundance of time in his word and allow that to be something to help purify you as well. Now, the blessing that comes to those who are pure in heart, notice Jesus says, they shall see God. You know, this term see God speaks of a great intimacy, a great intimate relationship with him. The only way that you and I get to have a deep, intimate relationship with God is if we have a pure heart. The reality is our sin separates us from God. And the only reason we have any relationship with God is because Jesus has paid for our sin on the cross. When we place our trust in Jesus Christ, we get the blessing of having that intimacy with God. It starts through trust in Jesus and what he's done for us, but it continues as we confess because you know and I know when we sin, it hinders our relationships, not just with God, but with others. When there's sin that's not dealt with, that's not uh, repented of, that's not forgiven, you know, it, it has this uh, work of you know, building this wall between you and the person that you have that relationship with, and it happens with God. As, as you sin, you know, there's an issue that is there, and if it's not dealt with, it hinders your relationship with God. Oftentimes, it hinders even your desire to be with him and spend time with him because you have this guilt of what you've done and you don't even feel worthy and you're not, but God is still loving enough to allow you to be in his presence because of what Jesus has done. And this is why repentance of our sin is so important because it helps us have that relationship with Jesus. And as we repent, it's clean, it's cleansed. The relationship is back to the way it should be and we can continue on with it. We get to see God and have that intimacy with him. This is one of the greatest blessings we've been given but it comes through that recognition and confession and dealing with our sin so that we can be pure in heart. Verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The seventh character quality that Jesus says God blessed are those who are peacemakers. A peacemaker is someone who does all they can to make sure that peace happens. Now, interestingly, Jesus would have most likely used the Hebrew word shalom. If you go to Israel today, you'll hear this word shalom all the time. It's a a greeting that is regularly given uh, between people. But shalom or peace is never only a negative statement. It never only means the absence of war or trouble. Uh, The greater meaning of this word shalom is everything which makes for a person's highest good. And so if someone says shalom, they're not just saying to you, I wish you the absence of trouble. They're saying, I wish you the abundance, that the presence of all good things. So Jesus is saying that this blessing goes to the peacemaker, not just someone who desires peace, but someone who actually seeks to make peace with those around them. It's an active thing that someone's involved in. William Barclay says this about the peace Jesus is speaking about. The peace which the Bible calls blessed does not come from the evasion of issues. It comes from facing them, dealing with them, and conquering them. What this beatitude demands is not the passive acceptance of things because we're afraid of the trouble of doing anything about them, but the active facing of things and the making of peace, even when the way to peace is through struggle. 
So being a peacemaker means that you're willing to deal with trouble, difficulty, that you're, I'm willing to go through that in order for peace to happen. Anybody who's ever had a broken relationship or dealing with anything like that, you realize if you're the one seeking to make peace, it's often hard. It's often difficult. It often requires a sacrifice on your part. But if that is your heart's desire and you're willing to actively pursue that, then oftentimes you can be part of the process of making that peace happen. Well, Jesus said the blessing that comes to those who make peace or are peacemakers is that they shall be called sons of God. Now, this is really interesting because in the Hebrew language, son of something was a very typical thing that they would use because the Hebrew is not rich in adjectives. And so they would, you know, try to describe something, they would use son of plus an abstract noun to show the connection with you and the thing that you're a son of. If you remember Barnabas, he's given that name because he was an encourager, and they called him the son of encouragement. Now, they could have called him the man who was an encourager, but no, that they called him the son of encouragement, connecting that term son of with encouragement to show that's who this guy is. He's someone who is an, a, an encourager of others. Now, I find this interesting because you would think Jesus would say peacemakers will be called sons of peace. I mean, if a son of describes what you are, you would think, okay, well, Barnabas is the son of encouragement because he's an encourager. If we're peacemakers, then we should be sons of peace. But Jesus doesn't say that. Notice what he does say. He says you will be sons of God. Now, this is very interesting because instead of saying you're sons of peace, you're sons of God. Well, why? Because God is the ultimate peacemaker, and he has paid the ultimate price to make peace with mankind. Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. God is a peacemaker. And he made peace with you and I. And the price for that peace was to sacrifice his only son on the cross so that we could have peace with him because we were at war. We were at war with God because of our sin. And the only way to have peace was for him to sacrifice his only son to bring reconciliation between himself and us. And so as we become peacemakers, we're going to be called sons of God, who is the ultimate peacemaker. It represents who God is. That's one of the ways that we are uh, witnesses and ambassadors and re- reflective of God and who he is. As we are peacemakers, it shows we are children of God because God is a peacemaker. But God doesn't just want us to demonstrate peace towards him. He's done that work. He wants us to demonstrate peace with others. Romans 12.8 says, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That's God's heart for us. 
Now, notice he does say, you know, as much as depends on you, because there are times where we do everything right to make peace with a culture or an individual, but they're not willing for peace to happen, and so they still come and do things to us, and, and, and that peace relationship doesn't take place. But it's not because of us, and that's the ultimate thing. It should never be our fault that peace isn't happening. It should never be on us that we are doing the things to cause war. It should be we are always seeking peace. So as much as depends on us, as we live in this culture, we should be seeking to be peaceable and living peaceable with those who live in the culture with us. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, the character qualities that describe here in the Beatitudes, they're really not valued by this world. And actually, oftentimes they're looked at in in a very negative way. They're despised sometimes. And so, The response of the world to the person who does these things, to the person who has these characteristics, to the person who's ultimately living like Jesus lived, we see can be negative. And this is the final challenge that Jesus gives us, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So here we see two more blessed, but really it's the same thing. It's blessed are those who are willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, and for Jesus' sake. The response that the world often has to those who are part of Jesus' kingdom is persecution. Actually, the Bible tells us those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There's a reality that as we do these things, this world that's so opposed to them will persecute us because of it. And so Jesus wants to finish this reality. Hey, if you're doing all seven of these things that I've shared with you, let me share this final one because you will be persecuted as you do this. And I want you to know that there is a blessing because you're being persecuted for living right. And there's a blessing for being persecuted for Jesus' sake. But notice the blessing does not come because you're sinful. It doesn't come because of something we do. Because sometimes we're being persecuted for our own sin. And we need to be able to differentiate between the two. Jesus is saying, when you're persecuted because of him and living for him, there's a blessing that comes. If you're being persecuted because you're just being foolish and you're being a jerk and you're being sinful to someone, well, that's just a consequence of sin. There's no blessing by God that comes for that. And so the blessing comes because of persecution, because we're living for God, and it's ultimately uh, for Jesus' sake. And Jesus tells us, hey, for those who are persecuted for those reasons, the blessing is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. This is a wonderful truth to hold on to. When we're being persecuted in this life, Jesus wants us to know there are rewards for you in heaven. God is storing up rewards for you as you're willing to be persecuted for him here on this earth. And it's something that we just need to have that eternal perspective and that recognition that, you know, what I go through in this life for Jesus Christ has eternal rewards and blessings, especially when I'm being persecuted for his sake. And I love what Jesus says here as well. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Because those aren't terms that we ever use with persecution. 
Persecution, rejoice, exceedingly glad. No, no, no. Persecution, you know, we have very negative words that we associate with that with. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Understand, persecution's hard. Persecution's difficult. Persecution can be, make you in a, uh, put you in a miserable place. But yet, because of what it produces, we can rejoice. We can be exceedingly glad because we're storing up blessings in heaven, rewards in heaven because of what we're willing to go through here in this life. And so he's saying, hey, you can be joyful. You can be glad that you're going through these things. Not glad that you're in the midst of them. Not glad because of how horrible they are. He's not saying take joy in the persecution. He's saying take joy in what they produce and what you're ultimately going to receive eternally for being willing to go through through these things presently. And this should be something that helps us because as we go through and do these things, we will be persecuted and our flesh thinks, forget it. It's not worth it. I'm not doing this anymore. I don't want this persecution. And so if I stop living for Jesus, it won't happen anymore. I won't be persecuted anymore. If I stop standing up for truth and what the word says, then people won't attack me anymore. And so there are many people who just say, you know what? I'm going to stop. I'll stop standing up for truth. I'll stop living for Jesus because I don't want the consequences of persecution. And what Jesus is saying is, you know what? Yes, you will receive consequences of persecution, but you can be glad because what that is bringing to you eternally is far more valuable than what you're going to suffer presently in this life. And we have to believe that blessing, believe that truth, and be willing to suffer recognizing it is not wasted what we go through because God rewards us for eternity. So Jesus shares with us eight character qualities that he wants each one of us to have. To be poor in spirit. Recognize we got nothing spiritually. It's all from him, looking to him, trusting him. To mourn our sin. To be meek. To place God as the authority over our life to have this great hunger and thirst, this desire for righteousness, for living right before God, to be merciful, not just in feeling, but in action, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers, and to be willing to be persecuted for Jesus, to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's what God wants from us. He wants each one of these things in our life, not just us to say, well, I'm a, I'm a great peacemaker and, you know, forget the rest of them or, you know, I'm really meek and forget the rest of them. No, he, he wants all of these to be character qualities that are present in our life and that demonstrate him. And if we say, you know what, I want to grow to become more like Jesus, well, then each one of these things should be things that we're seeking to grow in. And so as we've been going through this, and you've been looking and examining your own life, if there are character qualities here that you look and think, man, I'm not doing that at all, or I'm not doing that very well, well, do what we've been looking at. Come to God, repent, and you know what? He forgives, and he will help you. Seek those things, as we've talked about, you know, hunger and thirst for righteousness. I mean, you want to grow in this stuff, you know, ask God for that desire and continue on to do it. But pray. Don't just be content with, you know what, I'm doing some of it okay and that's fine. No. Say, Lord, I want to continue to grow in all these things. So help me in the areas where I'm struggling, in the areas where I'm weak, and continue to bless me maybe in the areas where I'm doing well uh, so that I continue to do and will do all these things. I want to close. We're going to be doing an outreach right after the service in the park. And the reality is what we're seeking to do is something that 
has very huge spiritual significance to it. And so we're not just presenting a message. We recognize this a message is the most important message there is because someone's eternal life is at stake. And oftentimes people are hard and they're not willing to listen. They're not willing to accept the truth of the gospel. And so before we go out, for those of us who are going, and if you can't make it right now is a great time just to be a part of it in prayer. Let's pray for God to work in lives and hearts so that as we go, there are people already prepared to be receptive to the truth of the gospel and that we would see lives changed for eternity. And I would also just pray for God to give us boldness uh, because so often we get to a place where we don't want to address you know, the issue of the gospel. We don't want to talk about that. Fear creeps in and it keeps us you know, from doing that. So let's pray for, for boldness from the Lord that we would do it and to bring us to people that he has prepared so that you know, we would find people receptive to it. Uh, and let's just lift it before God. Um, we'll have some, several Pray and then I'll close us in prayer.